Shrink Wrap Radio number 865. Stephen and Seth Porges on their new book, Our Polyvagal World. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Rap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Stephen W. Porges, Ph.D., is Distinguished University Scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium in the Kinsey Institute. His research and writing on the polyvagal nervous system has revolutionized our understanding and treatment of trauma. In our interview, we will be speaking with him and his son, Seth, who co-wrote their recent book, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. Now... Here's the interview. Dr. Stephen Porges and son, Seth Porges, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Great well, thank, you. thank you, David. Yeah, I don't know how we'll avoid having you both talk at the same time, but we'll give it a shot. Um, yeah. So we're going to be discussing uh, your jointly authored book, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Changes. That's probably it. There's the whole book right there. <laughs> what, no. what more? What more is there to say? Is um, it just read the cover and keep on walking? That's all you need. It, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, how did this book come about? I'm good. Yeah, do you want to go, Seth? No. Okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. So, you know, my my dad, uh, who is the originator of the polyvagal theory, he he'd written a couple books about other people have written books about, but I think we both realized that just about everything written about polyvagal theory was uh, impenetrable by the average person. Um, It was either overly academic and opaque or written for a clinical audience. And our goal with this book was to write something that a normal person could understand, right? Just like get the information straight to the people uh, in a way that was digestible. And so we started talking and it, it just kind of turned out that, you know, through accidental, as I say, dinner table osmosis, just spending time with my dad, I, I kind of picked up somewhat of an understanding of this stuff and kind of felt like, all right, if somebody's going to do it, it should be us. Let's just do this. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's great. I, I would say, you know, it's almost like a genetic unfolding because I really don't understand where Seth got all the knowledge that he was able to translate. Uh, the uh, the other part of this journey is, you know, I'm an academic, and academics have one major frustration, and that is they have ideas that they don't know how to communicate to the world. 
And so you can work in your lab, you can write your science papers. We're really skilled in, in making things opaque, not in terms of communicating with a person walking down the street. So I've always been really kind of frustrated with the barrier between the ideas and really the application in the real world. And fortunately, I have this brilliant son who's this great, uh, uh, basically, uh, communicator and uh, basically took the ideas, worked with me and made it into a product that's very understandable. Yeah. So Seth, maybe you can, uh, I'll have I'll have your bio will be available on the site, but maybe you can say a few words for the people that are with us uh, yeah. How, yeah, yeah. How, you know, how is it that you're a professional communicator? Oh, boy. Um, no, I, I've been a journalist for years and I'm a filmmaker as well. So, you know, I was a magazine editor and, and writer, uh, mostly in science and technology. And you know, I was editor at Popular Mechanics magazine for a number of years, a columnist for Bloomberg Business Week. Oh, and, yeah. um, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. I made the movie Class Action Park on formerly HBO Max, now Max. And I have a movie coming out soon on Netflix as well. Okay, I'll have to look for that one. You think it's on Max and be able to get it there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Class Action Park. It's uh, it's it's very different from this book. It's about an amusement park in New Jersey that was simultaneously the most fun place in the world, but also the most dangerous. And kind of about, I guess, why we as humans are are drawn to such scenarios. Uh huh. Okay, and Steve, I think you. I have the impression that that you're writing your book even though it's science, most of it's scientifically oriented, um, has really brought about a revolution in terms of the way that, that, uh, that we con conceptualize trauma and potentially its treatment. Is that accurate? And if so, yeah, what, I, what, yeah. what was it like before? What, what changed due to your research and Contribution. It's it's interesting story because I'm not a clinician. I was basically a laboratory scientist who uh, uncovered a set of principles, basically uh, constructed a theory based upon mostly my own research. And when I started to talk about it at meetings, I was being invited to meetings in which they were therapists. They were basically telling me this is the story that they needed to hear. That. It, it explained how the body reacted to life threat, which was really the missing part in the world of trauma. We were very accustomed to thinking that a body under threat goes into fight flight, but under trauma and life threat, the body may just shut down and people may dissociate. And so they, people who experience these uh, with basically dissociative shutting down ex uh, experiences when they went through that, they didn't have a narrative. They were being treated by the community, by the therapist, by the medical community, as if they had lost their mind, in the sense they didn't understand why the body was no longer there available to fight or flee. So they're accused of being complicit, compl uh, having complicity in, in the events. Okay. And um, so, uh, Steve, uh, rather... Uh... Seth, maybe you can get us started here. Tell us about uh, polyvagal theory. Yeah, you know, we, we summarize polyvagal theory in one sentence very early in the book. We basically say, you know, throw away the whole book. If you just want to walk away with your uh, water cooler understanding of this, something you can tell somebody in an elevator, it's really simple. Polyvagal theory, you know, 300 pages of this book, throw it all away. What it really comes down to is simple. It is how safe 
we feel, not how safe we actually are, but how safe our body feels is critical to our mental and physical health and happiness. What that really means is our body's gauge of, a, of whether or not we are in a state of safety or state of threat or state of life threat determines how basically everything in our body operates and whether our body pushes resources towards the systems of health, growth, restoration, and sociability, or towards the resources or, or towards immediate survival. And it can't do both at the same time. So if we are constantly in a state of threat, as many of us are in this world we live in, in which everything from a vibrating cell phone to spreadsheets, to traffic, to cable news, to everything is constantly making us feel angered and scared. If we are in that state, our bodies are depriving the systems that need resources in order to heal us, in order to grow, in order to restore, in order to think, in order to be our creative kind of best selves. And so what we're basically saying is that how safe we feel matters. And it's an important distinction we say how safe we feel because the body really has no way of knowing how safe we actually are. Lightning can strike us at any moment. A truck can come down the highway and hit us at any moment. That's not what we're talking about. That is important, but it's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is our body using the system, Dr. Porges has coined neuroception, which is basically us scanning the world around us for signs of safety, signs of threat, using that information to transform our autonomic nervous system between different states, fight or flight, rest, you know, rest, relaxation, these different states, and in doing so, transform how virtually every system, organ, sensory experience in our body operates and what that does to our body. That's what polyvagal theory is about. Yeah, thank you. You know, I can remember earlier interviews with other people, with clinicians mostly, some of whom maintained that uh, that we're all traumatized. And uh, but but essentially, that's what you're saying as well. That are there different levels of trauma, sort of micro traumas, and well, does our system somehow distinguish between micro or not? Let let me kind of step in because this goes back to your original question: How did polyvagal theory change how we deal with concept of trauma or instance chronic stress? Or mental health. It really said that our physiological state that we're in is really the most important point. And so I call it the intervening variable between the external world and our responses to it is the physiological state we're in. And if we think about what mental health was before polyvagal theory, at least prevalent worldviews, it was intentionality, top-down brain structures regulate behavior. And when you were in a sense uh, dysregulate, you basically need to get a hold of yourself. Polyvagal theory talks a lot about lower brainstem structures as really providing foundational survival mechanisms. And when those systems get triggered into threat, they win. They control us. And we need to uh, literally port signals of safety into the nervous system. And what Seth was talking really about was social nourishment. This notion of signals of safety through social interactions can downregulate those threat reactions. Yeah. So, yeah, but what go, talking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm yeah. just going to finish this one. The, <sighs> the part is that we are a traumatized uh, species, but the emphasis has been in the world of trauma on the event and not on the body's response. And what polyvagal theory, it shifts the orientation. So a lot of people talk about 
ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences, they're very important. But, you know, some people walk through fire, literally, and their, their nervous system can literally cope with lots of disruptions. And other people, if they're embarrassed publicly, their body totally gets retuned and they experience it like life trauma, a life threat. So we have to be respectful of individual differences and even how we respond in different days and different times of the year to, to challenges. So polyvagal theory puts that physiological state in the middle. It makes it important and it changes how a therapist works with their client and how people work with each other or interact with each other. They start looking at the behavioral and I would say almost physiological cues, the intonation of voice, facial expressivity, uh, because the intonation of voice, uh, the muscle tension that's being expressed, these are really, we're broadcasting our physiological state to the other. And when a therapist or any person, like a parent, starts to attend to these features, suddenly the world becomes much more understandable. And what Seth is really also saying, once we become sensitive to our own internal bodily feelings, and we have a degree of self-compassion and respect for those uh, physiological responses, no longer are we embarrassed by these feelings of disruption. We understand that the signals in our environment have triggered our bi our biology to move us into a state of threat. It's yeah, interesting. And, and, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think he, he said something that's like really, really important. I just want to make sure yeah. it kind of registers that there's been a lot of attention paid uh, to, you know, obviously the, the vagus is very important to the story of polyvagal theory. It's right there in the name, polyvagal. Um, there's been a lot of attention paid to the vagus nerve on social media, in the clinical world, as this idea that, like, you can stimulate the vagus and heal from that. And there is truth to that, but people kind of approach it from the wrong angle. They approach it as if it's something to hack, as if you do this one trip, pour cold water in your face, do something like that and to stimulate your vagus and heal. What polyvagal theory really emphasizes is that the best, simplest, most natural, most expansive way of stimulating the vagus and in doing so making our bodies feel safe is safe social interaction. By just having a conversation with somebody who makes you feel safe, your body will feel safer and in doing so enter a state where it's primed for healing. To be feel safe is to have your body in a state where it will be more open to basically any clinical, therapeutic, medical intervention you can imagine. So therapy, medical interventions, surgery, all of these things, you're going to have a better outcome if the patient feels safe. And this is something that the clinical world really wasn't paying attention to until somewhat recently. And this goes down to things like, what are the lights or the sounds in an office or a hospital? What are those like? What are the lights or sounds in a school like? Like, what is, what is the physical environment due to our bodies? And polyvagal theory understands that these things transform how we feel. Different sound frequencies, different types of lighting change how our bodies feel, make us more primed, better able to be just more open to interventions, more open to therapy, more open to feeling better. And I would say this is a big part of what talk therapy is really good at. It is a safe, in theory, a safe social interaction. Right. The ability to talk to somebody, making you feel safe, and in doing so, making your body primed to enter a state of healing. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that it's somewhat agnostic in terms of the therapeutic approach. Uh, it, one could be a psychoanalyst, uh, hmm. uh, you know, one could be a behavior therapist, or anything in between, and still hmm. 
meet those conditions of creating, having a safe conversation with another human being, a feeling prized. And it also interests me that part of the reasons why it's caught on is it fits in so well with other threads of interest in the psychological world. And I'm thinking of, of Buddhist theory, mm-hmm. mindfulness, and all of that. And it's, it's, it's totally compatible and helps to explain even maybe why some of those t- meditative techniques and so mm-hmm. on are as, as effective as they are. Yeah, and you know, it really what? begins. It really begins to illustrate that we are dealing. When you're looking at perhaps some ancient traditions or some more modern techniques, they're all dealing with the same body. They're all dealing with the same systems, and they're all kind of expressing the same basic principles. Oftentimes, just through different language, really, is what it is yeah. through different storytelling and through different right. narratives. Breathing is an example of something that comes up again and again and again. We look at everything from yoga to you know modern clinical practices. And it's it's oftentimes uh, described through mythology, religion, storytelling, whatever it may be. But you know, polyvagal theory kind of offers a very very simple explanation for what's going on here. You know, your autonomic nervous system—that is everything in your nervous system—you don't consciously control your automatic nervous system, if you will—that controls everything we're talking about here. You know, if you're if you're revved up in a state of extreme threat, that's your autonomic nervous system. Likewise, if you're in a state of safety and you're calmer. That's your autonomic nervous system. All of these autonomic functions, your heart, your sweat, your, you know, everything here, you can't consciously control it with one key exception, and that's breathing. Breathing, you can both let the autonomic nervous system do its thing, or you can take control of it and choose how you breathe. And in choosing to breathe slowly, you are basically sending a signal to your body that you're not running for your life because you can't both breathe slowly and run for your life at the same time. And that message goes up and down to Vegas and transforms how your entire autonomic nervous system and bodily systems operate back into a state of safety. And it's a very, very, very simple, logical process once you begin to understand it. But, you know, my dad oftentimes talks about is if you stumbled onto this as something that works thousands of years ago, and it was a you know pre-scientific, pre-literate society, you need you come up with an explanation. You, you need a way of conveying this information so that it lasts, so it sticks around, so that lay people can understand it. And I think that, you know, once you begin to see things like that, you begin to see these patterns and these systems that appear throughout time, throughout traditions, and throughout medicine, all dealing with the same basic systems, basic systems here. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me, I just want to add that this, the issue of breathing is very neurophysiologically valid. And that is, it's not just slow breathing. It's slow exhalation that enables the vagus to have its effect. That when we have slow inhalation, we literally take the vagus off. So if we have slow inhalation and rapid exhalation, we get really worked up. So we hyperventilate. Basically. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's, uh, and again, in our culture, what do we say when someone is kind of like overly activated? We say, take a deep breath. But we forget the last part of the sentence, take a deep breath and exhale slowly. And that's why chanting and singing, playing wind instruments, and even talking work to calm the body down because they're exhalation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The, another fascinating thing is it's, it's transracial, transcultural, because a lot of the issues that we're struggling with in our society is, oh, well, psychotherapy is for white people only, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, and so we've needed an understanding that bridges 
cultures uh, and races and so on, all those things that tend to divide us. And it seems to me that this very much can do that. Yeah, let me kind of play with what you said about psychoanalysis for only, uh, let's say, white people. Or what I would say is psychoanalysis is good or more useful for people who are calm and are physiologically in a state of safety. And that fits into this issue of uh, whether there's a racial bias or a marginalization issue, because people who are marginalized in society are in states of chronic threat. And so having them sit down to get into a dialogue is a a position of physical vulnerability for them. And that's why the need to move and be near exits, basically. So part of what polyvagal theory tells us it tells us that a safe, calm body is available for learning, for healing, and for socializing. Um, the The part that becomes interesting to to that you're bringing up is that it's compa- once you take the model that a calm body is a better body for learning or for behavioral analysis (ABA) or for psychoanalysis or for EMDR or for somatic experiencing or any of the therapeutic models, you start thinking in terms of there are really two pathways in treatment. One I call the passive one, where you get the body into a state of accessibility. And the other one, an active one, where you do your work. And the work might be, even cognitive behavioral therapy will function in a different way if the body is in a state of safety. So we do our work if you're a therapist or a teacher, or even in a social interaction, it's more effective and more efficient when the body's in a state of calmness. Yeah, and and in terms of, you know, whether it's racial or gender minorities or any sort of group that is marginalized or persecuted to some degree, what polyvagal theory really does is it offers an explanation for what that does to you. To be marginalized, Mm -hmm. to be persecuted is to feel unsafe. Um, way more than otherwise would would be the case. Yeah. And Let, that has a real impact on your health. There's a real impact on your ability to say, succeed in school, to focus, to do all sorts of things. And if you yourself come from a place of safety, it can be very difficult to understand that. Polyvagal theory, in many ways, I like to say is a worldview, and it's one steeped in empathy and compassion that allows us to understand how people's experiences might, might just you know, cause these these issues for them on a general level. There's a reason that certain racial groups are way more likely to have hypertension than others, for example, or perhaps at different life expectancies. To come feel unsafe is to have a body that's under threat and have health that consequently suffers. It also speaks to the question of of uh, whether or not you, you need to have a therapist who is, quotes, more or less the same as you, who has, you know, does a gay person need a gay therapist? Uh, does mm-hmm. an African-American person need an African-American th- uh, therapist? And that's sort of gone back and forth. But to me, it, what, what we're learning from, uh, uh, from polyvagal theory is that safe feeling safe and feeling understood is really important. Because if you feel understood, then you start to feel safe. And there's probably, you know, a a good case that can be made that for many people, many situations, you know, if if I'm gay, I may feel like, you know, I want to talk to somebody who understands me, understands what I've been up against all my life. Mm -hmm. 
and and what it's like to uh, to have people judging me all the time and all of that. So I can really understand that. I'm not saying that it can't there it can't also work with somebody who's not from the same group, particularly if that person is, has extraordinary abilities to communicate understanding and compassion. Yeah, I, I would kind of make this other statement that our society doesn't do well with uh, with teaching us to be a good witness of others and being present with another to listen to another. And those are really the strategies of enabling someone else to feel safe in your presence. Our society is so much focused on fixing that which is defective. And when we get into that mode, we're evaluative signals of evaluation are interpreted as signals of threat. Think about taking an exam in school. How does your body feel when you try to get the grades, see what the grades are? What if you take a blood test? You go to your physicians and you're waiting for the test results. Your body is in this state of, uh, of expectancy and physiologically under threat. So when we talk about calming the body, we're talking about giving up the hypervigilance, the surveillance system of threat. And when you turn that off, your resources now become more emergent for interaction, mm -hmm. more emergent in terms of feelings of benevolence and compassion for others, more accepting. I use the word accessibility frequently now because I think that is really our goal in life is to be accessible to each other. Uh-huh. It's interesting how important uh, environment is. This, this really highlights the impact of environment, and but also the idea of the internal environment. Yeah, you know, so that there's kind of a. It's, uh, let Let me step in and kind yeah. of get you into a little discussion here, and okay. change the word from the environment to the response to the environment. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because response. we want to move from, in a sense, of objects out there to how our body reacts to those objects. Right. And I think there's a big mistake, especially in the world of trauma, in terms of evaluating or grading people by the intensity or of the traumatic event or, or the devastation of that event, as yeah. opposed to asking the qu real deep question, how did you feel, not... Uh, what did you th can you describe the event? So I think we've approached it in a in the wrong way. We haven't really understood. And I, by the way, I like to always use this phrase that what if Descartes was misunderstood or mistranslated, as opposed to I think therefore I am. And you know, where he says je suis donc je ah excuse me. <laughs> I, I'm I'm good. <laughs> I forgot my French. Okay, so I I think therefore I am. And if he really said je me sens, I feel my body. It's not I feel, but I feel my body. Therefore I am. Uh -huh. And the word using it in the reflexive form of the word to feel, which we don't even use in English. It's a, a French conjugations allow you to do that. But what if Descartes had said the real important part about life is really to feel your body, that awareness that we're here? What would our world be like? Because we have to understand what socialization, education, work environments uh, do. They basically don't listen to your body. Keep moving. Keep working. And we pay yeah. a price because there is an underlying neurophysiological consequence. 
numbing to your body is turning off the internal feedback loops that support your homeostatic function. So in a sense, we're damaging how our body regulates itself. And we get called this stress-related disorders, but it's very predictable. Put the body into a state of chronic threat. The body will work well for long periods of time, but it's going to pay a price. Yeah, yeah. Take us through the, uh, if you will, uh, Seth, through the the polyvagal system, because one of the fascinating things is that it seems to be connected to so many places in our in our body. Yeah, you know, the vagus nerve, uh, vagus is one of 12 cranial nerves. Cranial nerves are these nerves that originate in the brainstem, and they run from the brainstem uh, to very, let's just say, high-priority systems, direct link uh, in the body. You have the optic nerve that goes to your eyeballs, allows us to see. You have, say, the facial nerve that goes from the brainstem to um, the face and allows us to be expressive, uh, show emotion on our face. There's 12 of these. The vagus nerve is a very specific and very special one of these nerves. And then instead of kind of going to one specific destination, it weaves its way through almost our entire body and touches just about every organ and bodily system in the process. In doing so, it allows all of these organs and bodily systems to act in concert, to act together, so that if we feel threatened into a state of, say, fight or flight, it's not like our heart is doing one thing and our sweat glands are doing another and our lungs are doing another. They all act together into this cohesive fight or flight system. Likewise, when we feel safe, the signal of safety the vagus nerve uses that signal, travels up and down our body, and transforms all of these organs and bodily systems into a state of safety. So the vagus nerve is what gives us an autonomic nervous system, what gives us this cohesive system that all takes on these autonomic states, sort of, uh, we call them basically autopilot software programs for our body that transform based on how safe or threatened we feel. So there's almost no part of our body that is untouched by this. Uh, what's interesting, though, is once you begin to realize just specifically what happens to all of these systems in your body based on whether or not you feel safe or unsafe. And some of these things are logical. Some of these we know, but many of them, I think, are surprising, right? Like we've all heard of fight or flight. We all understand, OK, maybe I'll have, you know, somewhat of a different pain tolerance or adrenaline or energy or heart rate or whatever it might be when I feel threatened. What way less attention is given to is sort of the opposite of that. What happens when we feel safe? What happens when our body slows down, calms down, is able to transition into a state of healing, health, growth, and restoration? We use those words again and again and again, this homeostatic state of healing. There's basically no system in your body that's untouched. And key to that, and I think somewhat surprising, is that you know polyvagal means multiple vagal branches. There's more than one branch of the vagus. Each plugs into a different part of the brain. You have one in the ventral, one in the dorsal part of the brainstem. Uh, the ventral, which is the modern vagus, we call it, which is only really there in, in, this, in this form in evolutionarily modern social mammals, humans, dogs, you know, cats, things like that. That part of the vagus nerve plugs into an area of the brainstem called the ventral vagal cortex. And that part of the brainstem is home to both the vagus as well as several other cranial nerves that are specifically involved with social interaction. I'm talking the trigeminal nerve, the facial nerve, the accessory nerve, and the glossopharyngeal nerve. These are the cranial nerves that give us the ability to modulate our voice, 
to hear, to speak, to express things with our face, to shrug our shoulders, basically to be expressive social creatures. And those nerves are tied to the part of the vagus nerve that is associated with feeling safe. So when we feel safe, this entire, my dad calls it social engagement system, basically turns on where we have more expressive faces, more prosodic and melodic voices, more shrugging shoulders. All of these things happen. This transformation occurs where we become a social creature when we feel safe. And not only that, this uh, social, these social activities, the social behavior, the social expression it becomes a sign that other people's nervous system picks up that we ourselves are feeling safe and thus likely are safe. So by being social expressive creatures, we ourselves are being safe. We are projecting safety to other people who then proceed to project it back to us. This is how social engagement itself forms. It basically is a way for our nervous system to both feel safe project safety and express safety and it creates a circular system which is why you know you look at evolution we why why do we as people like being around other people why do we go to parties why do we have dinner <laughs> parties why do we hang out with friends why do we like being with safe loved ones we like this we seek this we go to nightclubs we do all of these things uh we have cities you know we like being around people if they make us feel safe this is what is happening it's this invisible dance that occurs through the social engagement system where you're both feeling, expressing, and receiving other people's signals of safety. And in doing so, allowing ourselves and the people we are with to down-regulate their nervous system and their bodies away from a state of aggression and threat into one of safety so that their body can feel safe enough to put resources towards long-term health growth and restoration as opposed to immediate survival. And that is so, so important. And so I think, you know, we all were raised in a world in which things like parties and hanging out with friends kind of use a frivolous or optional. And what polyvagal theory basically says is this is important. This matters. Being around people who we like, who make us feel safe is a, should be a top priority for us. It's something that basically uh, allows us to think better, heal better, feel better. All of these things that we value as, as people. You know, this starts changing the priority of play. So play is literally movement with social interaction, and it becomes now obligatory as opposed to optional. I want to add one little part to the story, and that is this whole circuit of this ventral vagal complex uh, is really the circuit of suck, swallow, breathe, and vocalize. It's our nursing circuit. It's what distinguishes mammals from their uh, extinct ancient reptilian uh, relatives. It's that transition that occurred 220 million years ago. So even the earliest mammals could nurse. And what that meant was they had this ventral vagal circuit. And this becomes very interesting when we start looking at how our babies come often with ingestion, uh, giving them the nipple that works well for a few months, then what takes priority? Social behavior. And you can run experiments and where mothers freeze their faces called the still face paradigm. And the baby will really go ballistic. And yeah. if the mother, after the baby is crying, the mother often will, well, part of the paradigm is you play with the baby, you freeze your face, then you play again with the baby. And when you play again with the baby, you're supposed to talk to the baby to calm the baby down. We looked at the prosodic features of the voice of the mother while calming the baby. 
if the mother's voice had lots of intonation changes, prosody, then the baby's heart rate dropped 10 beats per minute almost instantaneously, and distress behaviors dropped a lot. If her voice, she was still talking to the baby, but wasn't didn't have the intonation, heart rate didn't change, and distress was not reduced. We know that we're hardwired to detect intonations of vocalizations as signals of safety. Now, the evolutionary history of that was that this is literally broadcasting the physiological state we're in. And if we have, if we're in a calm state, the voice is more prosodic. So mammals would then interact with other mammals if they were broadcasting signals of safety, a vocalization of that their bodies were not in a state of fight or flight. And we know this. So in our social interactions, we will not gravitate to people who have monotonic, low-frequency, booming, loud voices without melody or screechy, high-frequency voices. We like people whose voices are really a little more uh, melodic. Yeah, I mean, like, we, we come back to this example again and again in a book about just talk to a dog. Say, uh, go to a dog, which has a very similar nervous system to our own, and say, who's a good boy or who's a good boy? the dog will react very, very differently based on just how prosodic your voice is. If you say, who's a good boy? It's tail my wag. If you use a rough, low frequency, monotone voice, you're going to scare the dog. Same thing goes for, for infants, right? They don't understand the words you're saying, but they understand what you're saying based on the intonation. This is hardwired into our mammalian anatomy. The ability to pick up a sign of safety or threat based on vocal prosody. It is so hugely important. And again, our ability to speak prosodically and also to hear prosodic vocalizations is turned on when we feel safe and turned off when we feel threatened. When we feel threatened, everything around us is kind of run through the filter of, is this a threat, right? The world seems to be a scary place when we are already scared. The world seems to be a safer place when we already feel safe. Yeah. So that David, was a, David yeah. I was go ahead. Were you have you ever been accused of of uh, with of being angry at another person when you weren't? Um yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well the, the issue so. is I would say that at times when our face goes flat, when we're like being challenged and we don't quite understand what's going on, the person who may be in a sense uh very vulnerable will think that we're angry at them. So our flat facial features, which are really where we just don't know what's going on. We're curious. We're in looking at it with, with open eyes, literally, maybe misinterpreted. So I call this concepts or when someone, let's say you're engaging someone and you say hello to that person, the person turns their head away and walks by. What's the visceral feeling your body has? I call, I call that biological rudeness. So since our body knows that it's a, a signal threat to us, although the person walking by us may just be daydreaming at that moment, there may be no intentional uh, slight being made. Yeah, I feel uh, disadvantaged as a male because uh, I think uh, my, I lack a lot of that, uh, what, what you call prosodic uh, dimension. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, and so I think a lot of times I could be misread because mm. my my relaxed face, my wife brings us home to me. Uh -huh. She, uh, you know, uh, she will think that I'm angry yeah. when I'm when I'm not. And uh, 
And I think my relaxed face, unfortunately, she's shown me, okay, look at this picture of yourself, <laughs> you know. And um, yeah, so uh, so I think I think in a way, some of that is a cultural issue of how as males, we are, many, many of us males, uh, have been uh, conditioned by our, by the by society, coming up when I came up, and uh, you know something to do with that period of time as well. Yeah, you know I think uh, the, the, sh- being vulnerable is uh, is something that is socially risky in certain scenarios. It truly is, and expressing safety is to express vulnerability, whereas to express aggression or defensiveness. Uh, the you know don't f with me kind of look uh, mm-hmm. is something that a lot of us were were conditioned uh, you know because God forbid you you come off as weak in any sort of way. Yeah, yeah I would re- I would rephrase that slightly, Seth. So I like to think of a continuum. On one part, it's total accessibility, and I enjoy that. But I'm showing my ventral side of my body and my arms out like that, and I would ask a person when you see this posture and if you're going to that. Do you feel like you're making yourself accessible or do you feel vulnerable? So the physiological positioning of the body, in a sense, relaxing for especially people who have trauma histories, uh, they feel vulnerable once their body kind of like relaxes for a moment and they catch it through their interoception, the feelings in their body, and actually have degrees of anxiety to get out of those social settings. So their nervous system may pick up cues of safety and they become like this, but then their interpretation says, got to get out of here. Yeah. The um, yeah. Uh, the pandemic, the period of, of the, when we were engaging in a lot of social isolation, uh, and I think I'm not alone in this, but I found it hard once the pandemic was supposedly over, and I'm not convinced that it is over, and so that's probably part of my issue. Um, it, I've had to kick myself in the pants to try to get social again. It's like... Um. Uh, David, I would agree with you. It was a price to pay because we were the the price was was being paid because the pathogen COVID-19 was dangerous. And now it was being associated that people were now dangerous. And now to get that after two and a half years of your body reacting to other as if they're dangerous, our nervous system got retuned. And so I find being in social settings exhausting. Uh, giving talks exhausting and my characterization my self uh image of my of my behavior has been this i'm a social guy but i'm now a social guy that has to be you know <laughs> i have to withdraw but yeah. the issue is part of what the theory is trying to say is your body's telling you stuff so i'm listening to my body and trying to titrate uh the sociality the i like it but i don't like too much of it now yeah, yeah. I was surprised to, in the, uh, one of the chapters in the book at the end is about uh, prisons, and mm-hmm. uh, and that played a part. It's explained in the book that, Steve, you were... Uh, yeah. I was a prison were, guard. 
You were a prison guard. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, you learned I, you learned a lot in that I situation. Learned the, I learned the culture. It was remarkable. It was after my first year in graduate school. And I basically came home and my father, who had been in adult education, knew people in the prison and the warden uh, gave me a job. And my father thought I'd be a clerk or something. But the guy looked at me, gave me a hat and basically locked me in the in the prison with the felons to begin. Oh, my with. goodness. Yeah. So I I went through an internship. <laughs> it was like learning that culture. Uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, very peer group oriented, you know, uh, very uh, posturing. It was it was quite a remarkable exercise. And it t showed me really that the context that you're in can affect your behavior. So I my language started to change from the behavior of being in the prison. And so when I would go out later and like play volleyball or something, words would come out that would never come out of me before. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> wow. What about... I, Reading that chapter uh, made me wonder about, uh, have you looked, you know, there was a TV special, I think, about prisons in Scandinavia where people, uh, there's a lot, seemingly a lot less stigma and they have a lot more freedom and so on. Um, have you looked into that at all? I, I haven't looked into it, but when I... Uh, well, the prison guard, I was very much into this notion of uh, whether prisons were uh, penal or were they correctional. We use terms like you're a correctional officer, meaning that there's a rehabilitation, but there really wasn't. And in a right. sense, I think that the notion is a culture that says uh, we need to punish as opposed to we need to rehabilitate. And uh, I learned I learned very quickly what, what that community was about. Uh, but I think we we have to approach this very differently. The other part, of course, being an academic for so many years, is the realization that incarceration costs a lot per inmate. And it costs more than like a college <laughs> degree in, in a right. major university. Yeah. So we need to understand where we're investing our money and what we're doing within our societies and not be so uh, punitive. Yeah. 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 You know, pr prisons are, you know, polyvagal theory posits that we as people will be more susceptible to uh, health growth restoration when we feel safe. It's hard to imagine a place that will make somebody feel less safe than a prison. You know, there's, there's folks, you know, the, just the noises, the sounds, the monitoring, the being around violence, all of these things, you have to be on guard. And it's hard to imagine some like a normal, peaceful person going into prison for a couple of years is going to come out hard. You know, they're going to come out uh, probably more aggressive, probably more frightened, probably more steely-eyed, right? And if our goal is to rehabilitate people, if our goal is to reach people therapeutically, we need to think about ways of making them feel safe. And when you start talking about things like solitary confinement in particular, which perhaps there is a time and place for, but the way it's often used is, as, as opposed to the last case uh, line of defense, a first, you know, a, a default option often. People are thrown in there for weeks or months at a time. Polyvagal theory talks extensively about how important social behavior is for our body's ability to feel safe. Well, solitary confinement just completely cuts it off, and you see people go mad. 
you see people go right. mad, right? Yeah. It yeah. is, it is, it is cruel. It is unusual, but more importantly, it's, <laughs> it, it just kind of makes your, if, once you kind of do that to somebody, you're going to have to do it again and again and again and again, because they're just going to become more aggressive as opposed to less. Yeah. Okay. So we did research, uh, Seth's mom and I, and this Sue Carter with her oxytocin research with her, uh, prairie voles, put them into isolation. And autonomically, they change. They become physiologically more locked into a state of, of fight flight. They lose their vagal regulation. So they get retuned. Um, and of course, with that comes different behaviors come out of that. But the the prison is a strange place that it's very, to me, it's very hard because if I go back to the 1960s, I remember uh, there was a lot of interest in basically social sociality socializing the society uh increasing i remember taking a course on in sociology where they talked about reducing the work day to like three days and that would be the future and therefore we would need to develop a more sophisticated way of leisure time and in a sense uh, work days are longer for most people now than they were in the in the mid 60s so we have not in a sense fed our needs for sociality for uh, relaxation and play because we have thought of play and relaxation as competing with productivity right and so we reward people who are in a sense obsessed with working yeah well we live in a in a very strange and stressful time right we live in a time of wars and rumors of wars and rumors of the extinction of our planet and uh and uh, how, what is your recommendation for survival? In the, in this I'll, start in, I'll start and then I'll give it to the next generation. I think as a species, we are great at problem solving if and only if we feel safe enough with each other. So what we're doing is literally compromising our ability to solve the difficult problems of our day by creating environments and contexts that put everyone's body into a state of chronic threat, whether that's through cable news or social media or the workplace, um, or the you know dialogue about climate, about war. Remember, I grew up in, in the uh, 50s and 60s, and what was going on then, it was the Cold War. And I felt a great relief in realizing that uh, Okay, I will give you my quick story. When I went to, uh, I was traveling through Europe, and then I went to Israel in the summer of 1964, and I went to Jerusalem, which was a partition city then. And I was against the wall for the partition, and I looked upward, and it was the Royal Jordanian Guard with a machine gun pointed at me. And my body said to me, I can deal with that. It's concrete. It's real. But I had great difficulty dealing with uh, the issue whenever a plane flew over, was it the Soviets going to bomb us? And you may recall, David, you grew up with the same ex experiences. Yeah, I did. We we had drills where we got under under our desk, right? Yeah. As, yeah. as if the, uh, that was going to get us through an atomic right. bomb. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's exactly. But it was the, the culture that was supporting that chronic state of fear. And, yeah. you know, for many of us, we never thought at that time we'd, we'd be adults like we are now, you know, living a full life. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. All right. Here's what I got to say about this. I think once you begin to really understand polyvagal theory, you realize that uh, it's not just that the world is a threatening, scary, anger-inducing place. It's that the world is optimized to be that. It's almost engineered to be that. Uh, social media, for example, you know, we have we have algorithms that monitor what types of content people pay attention to, what keeps them staring at their screen longer, and you just see more and more and more of that. Well, the same things that, you know, we are more likely to stare at things when we feel threatened, right? Even like market research firms will use uh, galvanic skin response, GSR, as a way of measuring engagement. GSR is a measurement of sympathetic activity. It's a measure literally of how threatened we feel. There is no distinction made between what, you know, uh, marketing companies call engagement and what we're calling threat. From a bodily perspective, it's oftentimes the same thing. Right. And so if you have a, a social media system that is driven by an algorithm that is hyper focused on increasing engagement or a TV network that's hyper focused on increasing ratings, it's naturally just going to become more and more and more of this. It's going to be optimized to make us feel more threatened and thus more engaged. This is something that politicians begin to realize that when we feel threatened, uh, the, the the parts of our brain that allow us to question things, to think independently, to think critically, shut down in favor of immediate defense, immediate survival, rather, right? Yeah. And so you begin to realize the cynical ways in which things are often engineered to yeah. make us feel safe. And once you begin to realize that, you actually do have the ability to kind of turn it off a little bit. You can say, I'm just not, you know, we, the term of art these days is doom scrolling, where you're just scrolling through social media, getting angrier and scared and angry and scared and angry and scared. And you can't stop because it's addictive to feel outraged. It is an addictive feeling. You feel your heart is going up. You feel this adrenaline burst. You feel it is really hard to do that. But once you begin to realize all these things, it is possible to put down the phone. It is possible to turn off the TV. It is possible to, to do the things that actually do make us feel safe, no matter how scary the world seems. Like spend time with people who do make us feel safe, loved ones, family members, friends, those sorts of things. Giving yourself opportunities for respite, for break, for uh, health growth and restoration. These are things we can do if we prioritize them. Well, this is maybe a good place for us to wrap things up. Um and and I think you've addressed the, you know, that very important question, <laughs> that underlying question of, you know, what do we do to get through this time? And you have spoken to that. So uh, Stephen Porges and Seth Porges, I want to thank you for being my guests today on Shrink Wrap Radio. This is Dr. Ralph Wilson. I wanted to let you know that I'm so impressed with your work that I'm, I'm virtually, I mean, literally, I tell every patient I see that they ought to you know, log into shrinkwrapradio.com and get the latest in anything that's concerning what's going on in their life. You can find almost anything at Shrinkwrap Radio. And uh, thanks for being there, Dave. I won't let you uh, take a whole lot longer on this spot, but thanks, Dr. Dave. Bye for now. Thank you, longtime listener, Dr. Ralph Wilson. Thanks for donating and encouraging others to follow your fine example. I'm so glad for your many years of appreciation. So folks, just make that donation and help us keep the lights on. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Dr. Stephen Porges and his media-savvy son, Seth, for their lively discussion of their jointly authored book, 
our polyvagal world, how safety and trauma change us. It's such a good book. I highly recommend it to you all. At the moment, I'm not sure if I have a guest for next week, but I think I do, so we'll just see. In the meantime, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious Earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.